right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. I'm here in studio with Mike Robinson out of the UK Column. Hello, Mike. Evening, Patrick. And uh, before the break, we uh, we told you about a new film, a new documentary film that was released uh, just recently. Uh, this is a Syrian-made production, and uh, our next guest has worked on this film for the most part of the last year. And the film, the documentary film, is called The Veto. And I'm happy to welcome on the show this week 21 Wire journalist and associate editor Vanessa Bealey, uh, who had a major hand in this production. Uh, it's a great investigative film. What does this film do? Well, Vanessa is going to tell us about this film, but but essentially this exposes, in a way that has never been done before, to my knowledge, this exposes the outright fakery of CNN fabricating news reports, fabricating news reports in Syria. Not only CNN, Al Jazeera, Channel 4, and, of course, the White Helmets, and uh, we want to thank uh, Vanessa for coming on this week. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, good to be back on. Great to have you on, Vanessa. And uh, this, this is an extraordinary film, and uh, I was able to to see it last month uh, mm. in, in Oslo. And, uh, well, I think we need to talk about this because it's so topical <laughs> with, with the collapse of the whole Russiagate hoax and the mm in which mainstream media played in prop- propagating that for three three straight years. Now let's look at the story of Syria, and we see sa- some of the same culprits who are really mm-hmm. driving the narrative early on in Syria. And this film, this film really uh, rips it open, and it just shows b- some behind-the-scenes, uh, sees them in action, basically. And it's it's extraordinary that, that you're act- they're actually able to put this this film together. I mean, it's a really, mm. it's a unique opportunity. Um, just yeah. tell us, tell us how this project came about. Um, well, actually it was sort of January, 2018 and a very good friend of mine in Syria had suggested that I should, uh, meet up with uh, Rafik uh, Latif because he'd been responsible for the exposing of, uh, your favorite and mine, Danny Abdul Dayam. And then the Khaled Abu Salah, um, for Al Jazeera. Um, his various fake reports, which were very much along the same lines as, as Danny Abdul Dayam. And of course, at that time, also, uh, Rami Jada, as he's known now, or as he was known then, Alexander Page, was another one who was churning out um, dubious reports, let's say, for the likes of CNN and Al Jazeera. Um, so I got talking to Rafiq. He told me about his project and asked if I wanted to be involved, which, of course, I jumped at the chance. <laughs> um and then, really, we spent probably upwards of three to four months actually working uh, on the cinematography, going to a number of places, including um, an exclusive trip to Baba Amra. I don't think, to my knowledge, that any other Western journalist has actually been to that area, which, of course, is also notorious um, for the alleged um, killing of Mary Colvin, um, by the Syrian government. Now, uh, I'm going off track slightly here, um, but we may well be making another film um, investigating the Mary Colvin case and Paul Conroy's testimony. Because what is very interesting, and, and I will put this out now, is that when I entered the media house, uh, which is the house that Conroy claims uh, he and Colvin were in when it was attacked, as he claims, by the Syrian Arab army, um, 
in his testimony and in his book and in the film or in all the related um, narratives that he's produced, he more or less claims that the Syrian army deliberately uh, targeted the house, um, firing shells into the surrounding street on either side of the media house until it closed in on the media house when it, it basically shelled the media house. Now, I can categorically say there is one rocket hole in the media house uh, on the top floor that I saw, which came in from the side of the building. So geographically, it would have been very difficult unless they had boomerang missiles for the Syrian Arab army to actually have, have hit that part of the house. Um, and that hole was actually there during an Arwa Damon report that we worked on for the film um, almost three weeks before Mary Colvin was even in Baba Amra. So this was an old rocket hole in the house. There is none of the damage described by Conroy in the house. The house has not been rebuilt. It's not been touched. That entire area has pretty much been left as it was after the liberation of Baba Amra from the armed groups, then predominantly Free Syrian Army, but power multiplied over time by... Um, more extremist groups like Al-Qaeda, etc. Um, so that's a slight digression there. Um, but, but what it indicates is, um, you know, as, as Dr. Shaban says in the film, there needs to be probably 30 or 40 more films made in order to encapsulate all of the propaganda constructs and, and um, fabrications that have been produced by the likes of um, the BBC, CNN, Al Jazeera, um, various Saudi media outlets, um, pretty much all of the, of the main drivers of manufacturing consent for war who were there, particularly in Homs in the early days. So um, basically we went to various places to get authentic footage to correlate with the actual stories that we were investigating or that we were going to be showing in the film, like, for example, um, the CNN report, uh, I think it's 72 Hours Under Fire, starring Awa Damon, where they are, of course, claiming that um, the Syrian government has bombed an oil pipeline. Um, through our investigations and through the videos that um, Rafik Lutuf managed to secure, we can see that this was an entirely a staged event, that the um, oil was released into the oil ducts, into the oil channels. It was then set on fire and then basically CNN filmed their dramatic report with Arwa Damon doing her Oscar-winning performance of running from one place to another, looking terrified because of the fictitious Syrian Arab Army snipers that didn't exist in Baba Amra at that time. Um, so that was just one aspect of the film. But the focus was very much on, as you say, the nefarious role of, in particular, CNN, um, Channel 4, who had absolutely no problem with the gilding of the lily, as they describe it in their report, by the Free Syrian Army, the creation of um, fake attacks by the burning of tyres. Now, interestingly, this entire idea was also picked up by Shamin Nawani, another excellent investigative reporter who has blown holes in so many of the Western narratives in Syria. But very early on, I think in an article called... Um, something like Hollywood in Syria, she went to Latakia and was given the same information, a story that was actually put out by Rami Jara Alexander Page that the Syrian Navy was shelling uh, its own coastal town of Latakia was basically discredited by Charmin's report where she heard from 
locals in Latakia that the um, the so-called pro-revolution activists were burning tires to make it look as if the shelling was happening, where in fact nothing had happened. It, they, you know, the coastal towns had never been shelled by their own navy at any point in the conflict. Um, but I think the pivotal part of the film, and, and that is completely down to Rafik's work, is that he discovered um, the Bambusa platform. <clears throat> now, the Bambusa platform, interestingly, I found later um, a video um, made by an Avaz activist in, I think it was around 2012, where they were talking about the... Um, two plus million dollars that they raised using Danny Abdul Dayam as their poster boy, um, smuggling hope in which they brought in uh, satellite equipment, mobile phones, um, all sorts of communication equipment for the so-called citizen journalists, of which, of course, Danny Abdul Dayam was one. Um, but they actually, Avaz, created the Bambuza platform. Um, they were very clear in this little clip that I've actually got on my YouTube channel that they were responsible for the creation of the Bambuza platform. Now, the Bambuza platform um, was a feed into which um, these citizen journalists would, um, would, would funnel their reports, their live reports, without any editing. So, in other words, they were filming an event, often, as we see, staging an event, and then they were placing that report onto the Bambuza platform for the likes of CNN, Al Jazeera, BBC, Channel 4, to pick up and to use in their reports. And I think what is explosive in, in Rafiq's research is that he has proven how CNN and Al Jazeera cherry-pick elements of those reports. In other words, they take out the, the, the condemnatory aspects, for example, um, where we see the child Nahem being rehearsed in what she should say on the report, where she's being taught to, um, to, to say words of hatred against President Assad and his wife and his children. Um, and then on the, on the actual report, of course, we don't see any of the rehearsal that comes before. Or in another um, report where, in fact, the extremist groups are murdering um, Alawite uh, civilians shooting them outside the building and then bringing them in to try and say that it's a Syrian government massacre. I mean, the extent to which these reports were fabricated is, is mind-blowing. I mean, we know from Libya, from Iraq, um, from Venezuela right now, um, that they are fabricating, that they are making up narratives real time. But I don't think before this film that we've ever seen it so um, clearly laid out and explained. Let, let me just get this straight for, for people out there. So bam, Bamboozer, that what you're talking Bambuza, about. Yeah. This is basically a back-end platform, something mm -hmm. something like Rupley uh, with RT as the Rupley video agency where you have citizen journalists out there uploading content mm. to and some of it's curated and then the mainstream media can subscribe to it like Reuters feed or like an AP feed. But this mm. is a back end, almost like a private network that was only mm. a, only certain people knew about it, which are Western mainstream media, citizen activist journalists, so-called citizen journalists, activist journalists in Syria with the opposition uh, and also uh, 
uh, well, Avaz and other, who knows, um, who else had Amnesty International, I don't know, Human Rights Watch, I'm not sure. But it was, so basically the word went around and only certain people um, knew about this, right? Mm-hmm. Is it just more or less yeah. what we have Yeah, here? That's, that's more or less what it is. And actually, Bambi user shut down, um, I think it was around the middle of last year, um, but not before Rafik, of course, had, had downloaded all of the videos that he needed. <laughs> I hasten to add. <laughs> So this is this is this is amazing opportunity, and uh, this was also the platform. This and everyone wanted to know. In fact, CNN Anderson Cooper from CNN, mm-hmm. uh, who, who was handling, uh, who was Danny Diem's Sir, D- Syrian Danny was his name. Uh, he, he was his handler. So uh, Cooper was handling Danny Diem, Syrian Danny, and nobody. Then the the footage came out on YouTube of of Danny basically. Mm-hmm staging a report including mm. sound, sound effects this is all in the film <laughs> the veto yep. okay and and no one could figure out uh how that happened even danny himself couldn't work <laughs> it out <laughs> i mean can you imagine well he's not the brightest <laughs> he's, clearly he's not he's clear. so and, and anderson cooper literally was caught on his back heels on on a live broadcast on cnn all of this you you've got beautifully laid out uh, in mm. this film, this is a damning indictment. I mean, if you were to put the media on trial, CNN on trial, um, th- th- this film would be front and center in terms of of evidence. Uh, mm. But but some of the admissions in there, the, they've caught Anderson Cooper really. I mean, he doesn't look very good in this. Uh, <laughs> neither does Arwood Damon. And mind you, it wasn't it Arwood Damon we saw after the alleged sarin attack. <laughs> Sniffing, sniffing bags in Idlib, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the one. Sniffing people's clothes and sniffing uh, children's <laughs> backpacks uh, for the what smell of chlorine? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or well, I think at that time she was even suggesting it might be the smell of sarin. I honestly can't remember. I just the whole scene just seemed so insanely ridiculous. Um, but you know, we shouldn't also forget people like Clarissa Ward um, as a as a tech very lover working for cnn um you know the, the 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 whole i mean the whole industry uh i mean it's almost a movie industry that has produced these incredible um fabrications since the beginning of um of the conflict in syria since 2011 2012 i mean we know for example that ali hashem left al jazeera because um, they refused to publish his reports on the fact that our militants were coming in from, at the time, I think it was Jordan and Lebanon. Um, Al Jazeera have been instrumental, or, or let's say Qatar, have been instrumental in promoting the idea of, of a, you know, an internal civil war, of an uprising, etc. But again, in the film, you know, we see um, the crowds basically being paid to come and to protest. Um we see, I mean, what is what for me was very interesting when I started to look at the footage that Rafik had collated over the years. And as I said before, many of it has never been, much of it has not been seen before. Like, for example, Danny Abdul Dayam introducing a so called civilian who later is seen in a tank and carrying a gun, etc. You know, but that's a fairly simplistic one, but still. It's very clear that, that so much of, of what we saw and what we were being fed by our media outlets was, was fundamentally fabrication. It was staging. Um, and very early on, we start to see uh, the Free Syrian Army um, carrying children in exactly the same way that we would later see the White Helmets 
um, doing the same thing. And that's what caught my attention. Um, so very early on, this concept of rescuing children um, from from the grip of the Syrian government, you know, the villain in the piece, um, would be seen on our screens. Then I think what is very interesting is from about um, 2013, when the White Helmets were created, was when we started to see the tailing off of the media fabrications and, and the transformation into the White Helmet productions, which were a lot slicker. And, of course, it gave plausible deniability to the media, who at that point were starting to be exposed, um, mostly by Rafiq, but by a number of other journalists also inside Syria, it has to be said. So they were in danger of their cover being blown. And I think that that's one of the reasons why at that point, um, the white, sorry, <laughs> dogs barking, why the white helmets were um, were introduced in, or, or were created, let's say, in around March 2013 to take over the running of the fabrications and the stagings. And, of course, very shortly after that, um, we saw the Guta chemical attacks and then, you know, the rest is history. We've, we've seen a huge number of what we now have to question as being staged events because of the very clear staging of the um, Duma chemical attack in April 2018. You know, there can be no question now that the White Helmets staged that attack. And in um, one of my latest articles, which followed on from um, revisiting Duma, speaking to survivors of the Jaish al-Islam Toba jail uh, in Duma, and hearing how they describe the White Helmets as being subordinate to Jaish al-Islam, working for them to produce um, positive media and PR in order to secure more funding for the extremist group, in the knowledge that it is the UK Foreign Office that is funding the White Helmets, created the White Helmets as a propaganda construct, but is also allegedly funding the PR for Jaish al-Islam. So it makes perfect sense that the White Helmets would be working in tandem with Jaish al-Islam to produce and stage the chemical attack hoaxes to give cover for Jaish al-Islam, particularly as in April 2018, the Syrian army was closing in and tightening the noose on, on one of the most brutal and violent extremist groups in Syria, who had previously, of course, used chemical weapons against the Kurdish communities and Sheikh Maksud in Aleppo in 2016. So I think what is, what is fascinating about this film for me, to some degree for me, it goes over old ground. But what it does is show very clearly how those fabrications were produced. For me, it shows the evolution from, you know, a, a kind of a cocky media, an arrogant media that didn't think it was going to be rumbled to 2013, recognizing the fact that actually they were slightly in a more precarious position in, in the information war and that they needed to up their game to the production of the White Helmets, and then the training also in Gaziantep in Turkey of a number of media outlets funded by Saudi Arabia, by Qatar, trained by, for example, probably Chatham House, who are regularly giving um, training sessions in Gaziantep. We know that one of the White Helmets is a contributor to Chatham House while being the media and advocacy manager for the White Helmets. So, you know, what it does is it just opens a door into the expansion of um, that, that, that misleading false 
narratives that were being fed to the Western public. Yeah, I can see that. I can see the timeline, the progression, the mm. progression happening. Yeah, and and also the the Al Qaeda embeds where Western mm. journalists are now seen suspect. The only really safe place they could go to report or to be embedded with Jabhat al Nusra <laughs> or to yeah. be with Arar al Sham or some of the uh, terrorist groups uh, like Martin Shulov from uh, from the Guardian, mm. for instance, as a newspaper reporter. But but Clarissa Ward's a perfect example. Um, yeah is effectively in there with an al-Qaeda, with Jabhat al-Nusra, basically, with mm. with her fixer being um, uh, Bilal, Bilal Abdul Karim, who yeah. is, is a propagandist, let's let's not mince words, he's a propagandist <laughs> for, for terrorist yeah. groups in, in Syria. But, uh, mm. so, so this this is an interesting, and also the ISIS videos, that hasn't been fully, that that's one of the ones that m- might come later, uh, the whole dramatic uh, Hollywood aspect of all of those isis including the green screen videos mm-hmm. uh in yeah. that who knows where they were filmed in iraq syria <laughs> or, or turkey or whatever mm-hmm. but but th- those were also hollywood you're talking about hollywood productions those were also very much staged and uh mm-hmm. designed for certain objectives basically um, yeah absolutely yeah but i agree they haven't been fleshed out but tell me what you think about this i'm i've i I've I've said there's two things I want to bring up here uh, about about th- this film, the veto. Mm. The, the the first one is, oh, by the way, how how does the title, the veto? What does this mean? People have asked me, uh, why? Oh, okay, yeah, sorry, I kind of missed that bit out. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, basically, so, sorry, yeah, basically, the veto was chosen um, in honor uh, of the Russian and Chinese vetoes that throughout the conflict have um, basically safeguarded Syria against um, increased military intervention under, you know, the humanitarian banner um, and and have effectively um, defended international law and the territorial integrity of a sovereign nation, in this case, uh, Syria. So I think for Rafiq and, and for Syria in particular, and for Dr. Shaban and Dr. Al-Jafri, both of whom were interviewed in the film um, and gave absolutely, you know, heart-stopping statements and testimony. Um, I think it is is definitely in honour of those vetoes and in the solidarity of Russia and China with Syria throughout this um, externally fermented conflict. And, okay, so so here's what what I want to add. Do you think Mm -hmm. I, and I, I've thought about this a while, and I, I looked at the White Helmets videos as an example. Mm. Okay, but mm. you could say any mainstream reporting that that would say g- give a false depiction or a completely fabricated report about Assad's atrocities, basically. Mm-hmm. And you see children, men running with children, you know, men between the age of uh, you know twenty twenty five and thirty five running with babies all the time, constantly. Mm. Right. That's the that's the standard white helmet shtick. Right. And I yeah. think this is being this is being broadcast in the UK, in the US, in Canada. This is being broadcast uh, in France, in, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Norway, in Denmark. Uh, mm-hmm. This is also being broadcast in the Ukraine in Chechnya, in Dagestan. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> yeah. And, and in Saudi Arabia and Qatar and uh, Iraq and all over the Middle East as well, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia. Okay, mm-hmm. exactly what I'm, I'm going with this. Do you think <laughs> that the role of these videos, this propaganda in the recruitment of foreign extremist fighters to go 
to Syria to fight the good fight against the evil Assad. Do you think? Do you think this is an important factor? These films. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I think, I think the White Helmets have um, a very complex role and a multi-layered role. Um, You know, we've explored much of it in in the articles that have been published at Twenty First Century Wire, in my research, and your research, and a number of people's research. But I think, yes. You know, effectively, um, they have acted as a recruitment agency into, um, as you say, the, the, I hate using that word, but it's a word they would use in the jihad against um, the Syrian government and, and against um, Iran in particular, of course, <laughs> um, and Hezbollah um, that are seen by the, the Wahhabi uh, influenced groups and the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood influenced groups, as being interlopers in Syria, despite, of course, the fact that they were invited. And there has a long-standing um, defense pact between Syria and Iran and between Syria and Hezbollah. Um, and so, yes, um, I think particularly for the Muslim Brotherhood, I, I would go out on a limb and say that the White Helmets are predominantly Muslim Brotherhood. They are heavily supported, um, perhaps not uh, as ostentatiously financially by Qatar. Um, but you will often see Raid Salah, for example, giving training sessions in Qatar. Um, they are consistently given contracts by Qatar. Qatar is, is, is the um, protection umbrella for the white helmets. And of course, Qatar is also um, the, the bankroller um, for, um, let's say, Al-Qaeda and a number of the other um, more Muslim Brotherhood leaning armed extremist groups uh, and elitist groups inside uh, Syria. So, yes, um, I would say almost for certain their role is to produce the media and the PR that will attract people to the cause, yes. Yeah, I just think of the international brigades back in the Spanish mm-hmm. Civil War and if they had the internet, if they had GoPro cameras back then, mm-hmm that they would have done the same thing, you know, to, to promote the cause yeah. internationally to, to, yeah. to track the brigade. Well, I mean, you know, I think that's perfectly clear from, from the role that has been described to me, for example, in Duma, um, that they were, as I say, according to witness testimony, subordinate to Jayash al-Islam and that their role was largely to bring in financing for Jayash al-Islam. In other words, to produce the media and, and the um, PR um, and, I, you know, I have to keep coming back to this because people keep sort of missing this fact that the British government, um, I think it was 2.54 million out of the Conflict Stability and Security Fund that also finances the White Helmets, was given to um, a communications, international communications expert company, Incostrat, to produce the PR for a number of the armed extremist groups and Jaish al-Islam were included among those groups. Now, since then, the British government has tried to distance itself and deny um, that they they did provide PR for Jaish al-Islam, probably because um, a group that was known to cage civilians um, as human shields, that was known to use children to dig tunnels underneath um, the Toba jail that, that basically participated in wholesale torture and execution and, and massacre 
of um, minority factions inside um, Syria, including, of course, um, the Alawite communities of Adra Umaliya and Adra al-Balad in 2013, from where they took many of the kidnapped victims that were then brought to Duma um, to, to, to basically... Um, clear up after the executions by Jaish al-Islam to dig the tunnels and to carry out all of the menial work. And another interesting thing that I was told, and of course there is no way that I can verify this, um, by a number of the survivors was that they were actually the ones digging the bodies out of the rubble, but they were being filmed doing so. And then the White Helmets were taking the credit for the work that they had carried out. Now, as I say, I have absolutely no way of verifying that. But the thing is, the more that you start to put together all of this testimony, the more that you build up a picture of the White Helmets falsifying events and staging events. And, you know, we come back to the staging of the hospital scenes in the Duma event, the fact that effectively the OPCW final report does not, although it doesn't, it, at that time it didn't have the mandate, but it doesn't attribute any blame. And, and it, only comes to the conclusion that there is a likelihood of chlorine having been used. But, I mean, the chlorine could have come from pretty much anywhere, as we well know, um, that sarin was definitely not used. So, you know, all of this has to, has to come together um, and culminate in questions as to, well, were all the other chemical attacks that have been used to demonize and criminalize the Syrian government and instigate aggression against Syria, were they all staged? And if they were all staged, what happened to the children who were killed in those attacks? You know, we keep saying the white helmets running only with children. We never see the parents. We have no verification, no independent verification of the huge claims of, of, rescue, of rescue victims that the White Helmets claim to have salvaged from the rubble. Uh, how and many we know in total? It, we're many? now at about 115,000, but it just keeps <laughs> creeping up. That's a lot of people. Um, but, you know, extraordinary that for 115,000 rescue victims, we haven't got one video of a member of the family of just one of those videos congratulating and thanking the White Helmets. Um, not one. Or and or we one, know. We, name. Yeah, sorry. No, exactly. Not one name. There's no documentation. And we know from freedom of information requests and responses from the UK Foreign Office that there is no independent verification of those figures. What actually happens is that the members of the Foreign Office go to Gaziantep, they have a cup of tea with Mayday Rescue, James LeMessurier and the White Helmets. They're given the figures that are completely unverified, and those are then fed into the mainstream media and into government figures. So there is no independent verification. There is no grave register. As as um, a number of people have pointed out to me, that the Red Cross, for example, will keep a grave register of people killed in in any attacks. Mm -hmm. But we have absolutely no accountability. We have no names. We have no dates. We have no incidents. We just have this continual um, flow of propaganda and and promotional material from the white helmets to basically bolster their that you know their already shattered image and then that's without adding on of course um the huge amount of testimony um claiming that the white helmets have been involved in organ trafficking you know this cannot be ignored um we know from kosovo for example um we know there was a history of organ trafficking by the transformed uh, Kosovo Liberation Army transformed into the Kosovo Security Corps. Transformed by who? 
by James Le Mazurier under Bernard Kushner, who was accused of running the Yellow Houses that were taking organs from live victims, often children. Now, Carla Del Ponte um, has written about this. She's also written about the fact that the UN and members of the UN in Pristina and Kosovo tried to, to impede her investigations, but she still managed to produce a book on that. So we know that historically this is one of the harvests of war, um, whether it is human trafficking, whether it's organ trafficking, whether it's child trafficking. We know for a fact that this is one of the harvests from, from war, unfortunately. Um, we know that James Mazurier was involved in the whitewashing of the KLA, the Albanian warlords and Al-Qaeda, into effectively a sort of an early first response unit or a protection unit at the same time that they were categorically, according to the evidence against them, running organ trafficking operations cross-border in um, Kosovo. And we see again with the White Helmets, created and trained by James Le Mazurier um, and by British and American intelligence agencies, incubated in Turkey, um, being accused by Syrian civilians of stealing children. I mean, you know, we can all go back to Rashidin, Pat, in, in April 2017, where we saw the images of the White Helmets piling dead and dying children, one on top of the other, into trucks that were then taken to the Turkish border. Forty of those children are still missing. And, you know, my point is organ trafficking happens. Were the White Helmets, was the White Helmet role to facilitate organ trafficking in Syria, we don't know, but there should be an independent inquiry. The testimony against them should be investigated, and that is what is not happening. What we see is, is a circling of, a wag, of the wagons, both media and um, state institutions, around the legend of the White Helmets. Now, why? Does this mean that the White Helmets are about to be used again? Are they a global franchise, as we've suspected for some time? Um, we've seen the increased militarization of, of first response units, the, the increased militarization um, of, of um, what do we call, um, emergency rescue operations, for example, in Nepal and so on, um, in Haiti. Um, is this concept going to be repeated elsewhere? Why else are they protecting them? Of course, if the White Helmet construct falls and is totally exposed for what it really is, then of course that ultimately undermines every single narrative that has come um, out of Syria concerning the Syrian government. It has to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think it would have been a, a good franchise, uh, but I think they're they're really a damaged brand right now, increasingly so uh, as mm. as each sort of revelation comes out. I mean, this uh, leak, uh, various leaks that. Uh, Russia has been putting out uh, intelligence about uh, chemical weapons attacks that are scheduled uh, in in Idlib. <laughs> so you know, oxygen tanks uh, being used to smuggle uh, chemicals. So there, there, there clearly there, there's some things going on. And I, I also have to say this because I, I, tell me if this is true or not. Um, it, it, the Syrian government now uh, have 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 such a well developed intelligence program in their own country that a box doesn't get moved and they don't know about it even in idlib <laughs> am, am i wrong 
That no, that that's pretty correct. I mean, the the as far as I know, the Russians also have very good surveillance equipment. Of course, Idlib is relatively close to Haimamim, so it's it's um, you know, it's a security risk for the Russians as well as for um, all of the areas bordering Idlib and northern Hama, like for instance, um, West Aleppo, that has um, been targeted actually with chemical weapons back in. Uh, on November the 24th, 2018. Um, and then more recently, I mean, this is the extraordinary thing, you know, when you have people like um, Brian Whitaker, ex-Guardian, um, left under a little bit of a cloud from memory um, after revelations about his Qatari connections, um, claiming th- that there is no evidence um, that the so-called moderate rebels have access to chemical weapons, despite, of course, all the evidence of, of chemical weapons or ingredients for being smuggled across the Turkish border, particularly into Idlib, into areas controlled by Hayat Tali al-Sham, or, you know, which is just a clumsy rebrand of al-Qaeda. Um, and then more recently, when I was actually in Syria, um, in northern Hama in Al-Skedbiya, a Syrian Christian town um, bordering northern Hama, in fact only 500 metres away from the closest encampment of um, uh, Al-Qaeda it is now, uh, and the White Helmets actually. Um, I've actually seen the White Helmet Centre embedded in, in, in the in the Madik Citadel, um, which is currently held um, by HTS, by Al-Qaeda. Um, and uh, last Saturday night, um, I think four or five mortars were fired into um, around four villages, about 10 kilometers to the west of El Skedbia, so very close to where we were, and 34 victims suffering from um, whatever the chemical was that was used, inhalation, um, were brought into Al Skadabia Hospital, and I was able to go and interview them and speak to the doctors and, and nurses um, on duty. Now, what they told me was um, the mortars, instead of just releasing the black smoke that they used to, they released a white, what they described as a smoke or a gas, which was very dense. Um, it hovered about a meter from the ground. And as soon as people um, breathed it in, they started to have serious breathing difficulties, um, skin blisters, damages, uh, damage to the cornea of the eye. Um, and they were rapidly, in, in some instances, overcome. Um, when I was in the hospital, so about eight, seven, eight hours after the attack, one woman went into a, a what I would describe as a shock um reaction um and and basically lost consciousness in front of me um some of the victims were recovering but all of them described the same white cloud the fact that it smelt of chlorine of bleach um and um they suffered very similar um symptoms um now i know at the time that um a team i believe of both russian and syrians had gone into the villages to obviously take samples um, and also to make sure that it was safe um, from a radiation point of view or, or any other more toxic material for, for residents to return home. Mm. Yeah, there's there's some of the details of this on a report that's up on uh, 21st Century Wire right now. And take a look at that. The headline is uh, Syria suspected Al-Qaeda chemical attack in northern Hama. 
mm-hmm. and and it really is there's there's great photos in here there's some video clip as well uh that that Vanessa has taken for this report but it, it is it is really interesting to uh compare your your you're actually you've got some real evidence here as opposed to and I've been through some of the UN reports and I went back as as far as uh 2012 and I'm looking through all the UN reports and looking closely at the sourcing. Okay, this it's all mm-hmm. this it's all the same sourcing. It's it's uh, it's SAMS or it's the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights or it's the White Helmets or mm-hmm. it's activist journalists just across the board. So all of these uh, three so-called 300 chemical weapons attacks, which they're sort of banding about as a number in the U.S. media, attributing to Assad, like Meghan McCain did uh, on. Mm-hmm on the view recently um you, you actually drill down on, on the even the, the un reports that everybody cites the sourcing is all western funded uh, yeah. uh proxy groups basically or, yeah, or, absolutely. or, terrorist, or terrorists mm. or terrorists yeah, or, or terrorist affiliates um you know the majority of the so-called citizen journalists have been as i said um, most of them trained in, in Gaziantep, trained by who? Of course, trained by, as we know, the French Foreign Office in the case of, uh, what was it, Aleppo Media Center. Yeah. But also a number of others like Basma Syria and all of these have, have serious um, funding coming in from EU, um, EU members of the US coalition um, fighting against uh, Syria. Um, and so, yeah, you know, these are compromised sources. They, they cannot be considered anything else. And I mean, the extraordinary thing is in the latest OPCW report, as far as we know, there is no confirmation um, that they even interviewed Hassan Diab. If you remember um, the little boy who was hosed down in the hospital scenes, um, who testified to the fact that, that he wasn't suffering from any um, chemical attack, that he was simply suffering um, from smoke inhalation from, um, you know, the final stages of the campaign to liberate the area. Um, and he, of course, was taken by the, the Russian team um, to The Hague, where he, he did testify, along with a number of other witnesses, that, that this was um, not a chemical attack. Um, and so, you know, what is extraordinary is is we've seen, although... I have to say the OPCW report has been very unsatisfactory um, for the propaganda mill. It hasn't given them the, the, the sort of grist for the mill that they needed, for sure. And it's, it's basically exposed most of them um, as being sensationalist liars. You know, when they were making the claims that it was sarin or they were, let's say, um, promulgating the idea that it was sarin in order to facilitate effectively um, the, the French, UK and US aggression against Syria very shortly after Duma. You know, and, and the extraordinary thing is this, we see this all the time, Pat. You know, they can come out with the most egregious falsehoods um, and, and misleading suggestions that effectively manufacture consent for unlawful aggression. And then they can just move on as if nothing's happened. I mean, it's just like... It's, it's a bit like the whole Russiagate scandal. You know, it's, it's just, it's all swept under the carpet and they just move on to the next one and then start banging the war drums in Venezuela as if nothing happened in Syria. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, it's, it's at, what, at what point are they going to be held accountable for what they've done? You know, nobody has apologized. Not one of these media outlets uh. has had the the moral fortitude to apologize to syria 
for enabling um, the bombing of their territory in April 2018. For that matter, nobody has apologized for Omran for, for abusing and exploiting his image to, again, um, try to foment um, further intervention in Syria to, to bring about the no-fly zone, which even Hillary Clinton has admitted would lead to the loss of greater life in Syria. You know, and, and this has been going on for decades, decades. Yeah, yeah, it's just that Syria is, is one of the longest and most detailed uh, case studies with so many examples. The Banner uh, Alabed, the regime change mm. mascot who J.K. Rowling turned into a, a commercial commodity, basically. Mm. Uh, but but you, you, you just laid the groundwork for my last question, actually. Uh, <laughs> so... So knowing what you've just said and, and, and mm. looking at the film, The Veto, uh, mm. and if you haven't seen this film, it's up on 21st Century Wire right now. I want everybody out there to take this link of this film, The Veto, with, with Vanessa's commentary in it and put that into social media, into Facebook, into Instagram, into Twitter, into Snapchat, into whatever platform you're on and share the hell out of this film. Why? Because you'll never get a more damning indictment of the media. So my last question to Vanessa is, knowing what you know, knowing what you've exposed in the in this film, and I'm talking specifically uh, some of the worst offenders caught red-handed here being CNN, Al Jazeera, and Channel 4, okay? Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know, knowing what everybody knows now, do, do, do the, do, does the, the culpability of the media organizations that we've named does this raise to the level of war crimes this is my question well i mean uh, in my view yes i've always argued that um war propaganda um should be considered a crime against humanity because um let's face it right this entire eight-year war could not have happened in my opinion um, without those fabrications, actually blinding um, people in the West, you know, gaslighting, effectively it's a gaslighting um, project, blinding people in the West um, to the reality of yet another regime change war um, in Syria, which effectively, as we know, um, you know, through economic terrorism, um, through sanctions, um, through um, one of the most hideous, hideous um, proxy wars, I think, you know, I can remember. And I have received testimony from so many areas of Syria that were subjected to, to torture, to beheadings, to massacres, to some of the most gruesome hideous crimes um, that could possibly be committed against human beings. Um, I mean, it goes beyond any sort of um, ideological extremism. Some of, of the things that were done to human beings, to children, to families in Syria is in the realms of Satanism. I can't put it any more bluntly than that. The dismemberment of corpses um, the removal of fetuses. I mean, I don't even really want to dwell on it for too much longer because it's yep. incredibly distressing. Um, it's it's absolutely hideous. And when you consider that these media divas 
uh, you know, at Channel 4, BBC, at Al Jazeera, CNN, are still effectively lying through their teeth. They are still supporting the false narratives that sustain the war in Syria. Then, yes, in, in, in my view, they should be considered as war criminals because they've facilitated, they've enabled, they've promoted, they've supported war crimes. And, and war crimes is not even a strong enough term for me for what has been done to the Syrian people. And, but they fabricated, you, they've been caught fabricating mm. reports, and, and they've yeah. done this before in the past. This is in Iraq and other places. This has been yeah. documented in, in Yugoslavia, okay, in mm. Kosovo. This, but but the, again, they've, they've, they've used fabricated fake news in order to sell uh, mm. what is effectively an illegal war against international law. And yes. I think I'm, I would say if I, if I had the power to make such a proclamation, which I don't, but I'm going to say it anyway, there should be a Nuremberg style yep. tribunal for the media. There yep. should, and all of these, these, these organizations like CNN who have uh, fab, outright fabricated reporting uh, mm-hmm. and, and egregious propaganda, intentionally so, maliciously so, they should be put on an international tribunal to answer for what they've done in Libya, in Yemen, in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yugoslavia, but but especially Syria because it's so fresh right now. Uh, Mm. This would be the the number one case. There needs to be some accountability for this. Well, I think also what is particularly egregious in Syria, Pat, is that and I'm, uh, you know, I was just quickly thinking through that. I don't think there's ever been such a pushback in real time. So they've been confronted with the effects of the crimes they've enabled real time, you know, and they've still ignored it. They've not only ignored it, but they've compounded those crimes. But let's consider East Aleppo when the civilians were being subjugated to torture, to imprisonment, to rape to abuse, to starvation, to deprivation. And yet those media who knew perfectly well what was going on disappeared them. They disappeared their voices real time for four and a half years. They allowed them to suffer for four and a half years. And that pattern has been repeated across Syria. Let's go to Sweden to the massacre in July 2018, 170 civilians massacred by ISIS. Jon Snow didn't have time to report on that, according to his email response to Alison Banville. He didn't have time. Channel 4 didn't have time to report on one of the most hideous bloodbaths of the entire conflict. But they had time to demonize and criminalize the Syrian government in East Aleppo when they knew damn well that their own camera woman, Wayed al-Khatib, was working hand in glove with al-Qaeda and the other extremist groups that were perpetrating the crime against the civilians they were claiming to defend. Yeah, and, and, and Rashid Dean as well. There, there, yeah. there is evidence of a white helmet, a notorious white helmet, being on the scene, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and you know his Mawaya. name. I, yeah, Aga Hassan. Mawaya Aga Hassan. Yeah, very, was, uh, very, yeah. Very, yeah. Yeah. So, so, and so, if you can find this out, Vanessa, if I can find this out, if other independent mm-hmm. journalists can find this out, why can't Channel Four or or the BBC or CNN find that out? That's my question. You know, because would, they don't want to. I mean, Channel Four basically showcased Norald and Zinke, who had beheaded the twelve-year-old uh, Palestinian child Abdullah Isa in two thousand and sixteen. They then withdrew the video because too many people had pointed out 
that the ones they were calling rebels were actual child beheaders. But the program went out and, and, you know, we've written about that at 21st Century Wire. But we also know that Channel 4, um, the BBC and uh, The Guardian are behind the promotion of the White Helmet movies. We know that they are primary funding partners with the um, production companies like Doc Society, which was formerly BritDoc, for example, who have produced and processed the White Helmet promotional videos. Uh, including the Netflix one. Um, so they are the architects of humanitarian war. I mean, and actually, I, I would sort of put the responsibility um, more heavily at their doorstep than even at that of the military or at that of the, of, of the governments, because the governments can't function without the media paving the way for them. Right. And in Syria, you know, they've done it absolutely to the T. I mean, they, they haven't deviated from the interventionist roadmap that was that, that basically serves state interventionist foreign policy in Syria. Yeah, and I did I didn't mention Palestine because I mean that's yeah that, that that's just a standard operation now. Uh, how the media cover everything in in Gaza. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in the West Bank, but especially in Gaza. So that's like a playbook that you, if you really want to see it in its rawest form, just look at the way Western media covers that that situation uh, in Gaza and always favors uh, Israel at every turn. Mm-hmm. But, but but I think uh, what you what you've just laid out there, I, I think it's a pretty clear it's a pretty clear case. Um, there's willful deception at play. Uh, this mm-hmm. is planned this is well funded well organized and like you said if it wasn't for the media laying this out serving it up on a plate this this is where the politicians get their their information this is where they get their impression of what's going on in syria for instance Mm -hmm. from from the media so yeah yeah, the politicians are clueless that's no big secret right uh (laughs) except for the ones that got off their butts and and you know go on fact-finding missions they won't know basically so they rely on the press they rely on the media the media on the ground they're cooking this stuff up the the veto shows they're literally cooking the story up uh setting oil pipelines on fire filming it and calling it an attack by the Assad regime. I mean, unbelievable stuff. This is all in the yeah. film. This is all in your film. And then let's not forget, you know, Robert Stewart um, and um, BBC Panorama Saving Syria's Children. I mean, you know, this has now been picked up by some serious, by Anna Brace, former BBC. Um, you know, it's being taken very, very, very seriously, and so it should be. I mean, Robert's done seminal work in, in forensically analyzing and, and dismantling the report um, and that's a very serious serious accusation against the bbc that they should be answerable for i mean you know this is just extraordinary that these media outlets particularly the bbc that is in theory publicly funded um is able to spend public funds on producing naked raw propaganda that effectively will result in the destruction um, of a country's infrastructure, in the massacre of its people, um, in the devastation of an entire um, nation's culture, history, heritage. I, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm actually sort of speechless at times, and that's even before we get on to, for example, what's happening now in Venezuela, what has been happening in Yemen, which has been criminally misreported. 
um, by media in the West who, you know, all they do is bleat on about the humanitarian situation without ever going into who is creating the humanitarian situation, who is enabling it and who and why it's happening. You know, we, we just don't hear about that. Yeah, Mike. Mike wants to break in here. Go well, ahead. I was Mike. just going to, mm-hmm. you know, you and uh, you and Vanessa are speaking about uh, the media behaviour uh, in the run up to events, uh, at least as far as they're being discussed in public. You're talking about the media coverage of events as they happen, and they're t- you're talking mm-hmm. about event media coverage a- after the fact. But of course, there's another dimension to this as well, which is actually very little understood and that is the likes of BBC Media Action and the Thompson mm. Foundation and the work that they do to set these operations up in the first place. BBC Media Action, Juliet Harkin, her quote saying that the BBC Media Action went into Syria in 2004-2006 before the civil war ever started. They were identifying the opposition, the potential opposition within Syria and they were looking to foment change from within before there was ever uh, any calls, any public calls for regime change. Thompson Reuters Foundation doing the same kind of work. They're going in, they're training journalists. They're training journalists in the BBC and in the Reuters mould. They're training mm. journalists to, to, to present certain narratives within the countries. Uh, and, of course, this helps foment the change, which helps bring about... Uh, regime change at the end of the day so we've got a very famous case in the uk of uh, nazanin zaghari radcliffe in prison in iran iran has been been through judicial judicial process and claims that zaghari radcliffe was involved in in attempting these types of uh anti-government operations within iran subterfuge basically subterfuge Mm. uh we've got uh, we we have the incompetent boris johnson admitting or saying (laughs) in front of a, a select committee that she was she was training journalists. He had to walk back on that narrative whenever the family outcry uh, got, got the media attention because this was disastrous for her potential release. But mm. have these organizations na- that allegedly, in the case of media act- action, separate from the BBC, but which shares this pension pot and has the, word, the letters BBC at the start of it, it's not really independent, foreign office funded, uh, and uh, carrying out these types of operations, this is in addition to just the the, the really despicable the journalistic practices that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, very good point. Yeah, so the, 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 there's uh, there's it's quite an interesting picture that we're we're painting here today, uh, and I think uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, Mike uh, and Vanessa, but you know I think that's compelling enough for some of the crack mm-hmm. reporters at the uh, the Guardian or the uh, <laughs> BBC or the Times. Uh, some of these the great talents that are out there to maybe think, hey, there's a story there. I'd like to dig into that. I'd like to find out more because maybe something's not right here. Maybe there's some illegalities going on, or maybe there's you know some some. breaking of international law for instance Uh, (laughs) is this worth looking at well I don't know I don't know if that's ever going to happen because they're implicated in it actually that's the problem so Mm. so it's up to the independent media it's up to bloggers it's up to social media activists 
uh, to sort of bring this stuff out, independent researchers. There's plenty of them mm-hmm. out there. There's quite a few that listen to this show every week, and I want to say hello, everybody. You know who you are. Uh, but they're they're all out there, and they're all collating this information. They're all bringing it to the fore. They're engaged in the debates. They're absolutely a nightmare for some of these gatekeepers online, and we absolutely love them, and we want to say hello to everybody out there. You know who you are anyway. Um, and, and yeah, and share this film. This is the, the Veto. Uh, it's up there, uh, 21st Century Wire right now. Uh, so share that link out with everybody. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on this week, Vanessa. It's a very exciting project, and we hope that as many people see this as possible. Yeah, thanks ever so much, Pat, and thanks for having me on. Thanks to everyone that's listening. And, yeah, please do um, share the film as much as possible. It is actually available in uh, French, Spanish, uh, I think Russian, uh, English, obviously, and a number of other languages. So I'll be posting um, the different languages. The French and English are up at my YouTube channel. Um, The English is obviously up at 21st Century Wire. Um, But I will be... um, uploading uh, the other languages in the next few days an arabic uh, version of course right yeah yes oh sorry yes <laughs> and, and, uh, and i'm going to add this is a syrian made production and this is why it's so fantastic uh because because this this is a syrian made production this is not a western production this is syria really doing an outstanding job uh their talent there local talent there and you helping them as well vanessa so that's why i think this is extremely important and and this you'd be shouting about this film uh everybody and really pushing it around so but uh great great job great work vanessa and uh also on your other reports uh those are up at 21st century wire right now uh i would encourage people to read those and share those get get that information out and and please share it with mainstream journalists out there on twitter <laughs> and and tag them tag them <laughs> and, and ask them for comment on twitter and send, send this film everybody to all the cnn uh, superstars like Anderson Cooper, Arwood Damon, Clarissa. Frederick Plykin. <laughs> Freddie Plykin, my favorite. Freddie Plykin, yeah. Freddie Plykin is one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. So they're all out there. So, you know, share this film with them. Share the link with them. Ask them for a comment. We would love to get CNN's feedback. I haven't gotten it yet, and I've sent it out to Chris Cuomo, Don Lemon, uh, Jake Tapper. And some others. So I'm waiting for them to give me some feedback. I'm really looking forward to seeing what their thoughts are on this one <laughs> film production. Uh, and I've also sent it to Al Jazeera journalists as well. Uh, some of my favorite ones who I won't mention on air because, uh, well, let's just leave it at that. But anyway, uh, thanks a lot, Vanessa. And uh, yeah, take care. Take care, guys. See you soon. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. Vanessa Bealey, uh, great film. It's called The Veto. It's up there at 21 Wire right now. Get it, share it, push it around, watch it. It's amazing. And uh, show it to your friends and family as well and colleagues. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to get into deep state politics uh, on the other side with Basil Valentine. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. I'm here in studio with Mike Robinson. This is the Sunday Wire. Stick around. We'll be right back.